Welcome to Authors on Tour Live, a weekly podcast for people who love to hear about books from the authors themselves. My name is Darren Fote, and today we are podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore, one of the premier independent bookstores in the nation, with three locations in the metro Denver area. You can visit www.authorsontourlive.com for a complete list of upcoming podcasts. Wait a minute, it's time to begin. We're super excited to welcome back to the store, award-winning, New York Times bestselling, She's written all your favorite books, done everything, you know him, you love him, here to sign Shadows of Self. Please join me in welcoming Brandon Sanderson. Thanks, guys. Um, so what I'm going to do for you tonight is uh, my presentation will have three parts. First, I'm going to talk a bit. This is the danger of giving anyone university-trained a microphone, right? <laughs> That'll be about 15 minutes. Then we'll do a Q&A for about 15 minutes, and then I have a reading for you, all right? Ah. So the speech portion, this is, as I said, the danger of giving me a microphone. Originally, when I did my signings, I just, like, talked about my books and the writing process a little bit, but that's gotten kind of boring to me, and, you know, if you've seen me, like, how many people here have, like, seen me, like, multiple times, right? Yeah, you get the same speech. It's kind of boring. Plus, if, they li- if you listen to, my, like, my podcast, you get the same stuff over and over again. So I kind of came up with something new. I've started doing this with, um, with my last tour, and I really liked it. So I'm just going to kind of talk about um, something tangentially related to my books and just kind of shows you a bit of my thought processes lately. And this one actually started when I went to Sharjah last spring. Does anyone know where Sharjah is? Wow, not a single person. Okay. Uh, Sharjah is one of the United Arab Emirates. So it's a small kingdom that is part of the Emirates, which are kind of like kind of like a loose federation of states, except their kingdoms, um, over on the Arabian Peninsula by uh, Saudi Arabia. They wrote to me and said, hey, do you want to come out here and do a signing? I'm like, there are fantasy fans in Sharjah? Maybe. I don't know. It was a free ticket. So I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll go out. I'll, I want to see, see that area. I've never been uh, to the Middle East before. So I got to fly out. They flew me out on Emirates. Very nice airline, by the way. Um, and they actually posted some pictures to my Twitter feed where I'm out in the de- desert, right? There's just like dunes, endless dunes. Um, and I made Arrakis jokes and things like that. <laughs> How you can tell I'm a nerd is, you know, I'm not making Lawrence of Arabia jokes. I'm like, ooh, I'm on Dune. Um, It was really cool. Uh, Like, I I took a helicopter ride to the place where where we went out in the dunes, and it was like 45 minutes over just dunes, empty dunes. Uh, Really an interesting, different place. Um, And so I I came to my signing, all right, and I was somewhat, I had, had, I was a little bit timid. I'm like, what's going to happen at a signing in Sharjah, right? Um, It's, you know, I'd never even heard of it before they invited me. Um, So I walk into the the center where my signing is going to be and walk up to a place, and there is a line of people in traditional Arab dress. Um, The women were wearing the hijab. That's the thing that leaves the face open, um, but covers the head. Uh, The men were wearing the thob, which is the big, white, flowing um, outfit. And they all had the headdresses and the the black clothing for the women, the white clothing for the men. And they were all carrying big stacks of Brandon Sanderson books. (laughs) 
kind of like some of you are going to do to me tonight. I see you've brought yours, uh, the, you know, the big stack. Um, and I looked at that and I thought, these are my people, <laughs> right? I've flown to, you know, a, all the way across the world. To, for me, a very, very different place. I've spent a lot of time in Asia, so it feels normal to me. This is the most alien place I had been in a long while. And yet, even there, there were my people. In fact, one of the first people in line came up to me and said she'd just gotten back from Comic-Con in Dubai. <laughs> where she went as no-face from... Uh, Spirit Away, which if you don't know, it's a person in just a long black uh, clothing and a white face mask, which was perfect because it matched the traditional Islamic dress that she was wearing, right? Um, it, was, it was a perfect... And anyway, I sat and talked nerd culture with these people from a very different society from mine for a good, you know, hour, two hours. And it was mind-blowing. It was awesome to me because it kind of reinforced to me this idea that stories and what writing can do, right? I can pick up a book and read something that was written like 3,000 years ago and see what that person was thinking in their head. That is cool. And this made me think about Sejong the Great. Anyway, <laughs> Sejong the Great. That, that, you all made that leap, right? That's what, how you, yeah, <laughs> you, you were thinking about Sejong the Great. Sejong the Great um, was a Korean uh, king from the 1400s. Um, he's kind of like the Korean George Washington. They've got him on all his money, their money and stuff. And that's because of this cool story relating to Sejong and, um, and, and his life. Um, he has this really cool story. When he was um, kind of brand new as a king, he got together some scholars in secret. This was all done very secretively. It's all hush-hush. He's kind of like the Jason Bourne of Confucian scholar kings from Korea. Um, <laughs> Don't quote me on that one. (laughs) Um, But I'm going to use the big markers. Yeah, uh, they have big markers for me. But the thing that was going on with Korea at this time, it's it's very fascinating. They use Chinese as their writing system. Uh, Does anyone here speak Chinese? No Chinese speakers? A little bit, a little bit. Uh, Chinese is really fascinating, particularly the the written form, um, because it's logographic, right? This is, this is Professor Brandon talking to you. It's like imagery. Each symbol means something. You can't read them. They're not phonetic. You can't sound out a Chinese character. But what that means is someone who writes, you know, say food in Chinese, anyone who knows the characters can read it. And so you can have this writing system that spans a lot of different cultures very easily. There's a big problem with it. I'm going to write um, the word Korea, and I'm going to butcher it because my Chinese is really bad. Um, I took a class audit in college, and uh, anyway, all right, here, here's my attempt at, at writing the word Korea. I'm sorry, but none of you said you speak Chinese, so I could just come up with anything. Um, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to. I always get this one wrong. That's the one I get wrong. Um, and then there's that. Okay, so that's one part of it. And then there's this like big thing that you have to do this like little box. And there's like this thing and that and like a dot there and a dot there. And I got it wrong. I'm close. I'm close. I'm a little bit close. Um, but but I got modus. Oh, I forgot a, that line's supposed to be bigger and there's supposed to be a dot there. Anyway, so this is how you write Korea in Chinese. This is really hard. Okay? The thing about Chinese characters is you just got to memorize them. 
right? Uh, you can't, if you want to be able to read Chinese, you just got to memorize thousands upon thousands of these things. Um, and King Sejong realized his people were illiterate in Korea because not only are these things really hard to memorize, Korea's a di- Korean's a different language than Chinese. And so, for instance, Chinese, you don't conjugate in Chinese. You just write the symbols. In Korea, you conjugate. So it's like, you can't say, I'm going to go to the ho- my house in Korean. You have to say, I house go um, or g- to go. And it just it works very well in Chinese, but in Korean, it just doesn't work. Um, and so King Sejong got his, his, his group of ninja scholars, like secret scholars together and said, we're going to fix this. And what they did is they came up with a new writing system for Korea where you could write things um, phonetically. And I'm going to write, um, oops, oh, that was right the first time. Uh, um, you can write the same thing in Korean very easily. This one's supposed to be an N. Uh, so that just says Han Guk, Korea. And he made it so that the really cool thing about this thing, the thing that is ingenious to me is these like take up the same space as the Chinese characters. So you could write the Chinese characters and drop in the Korean Um, like you construct a little character here out of uh, phonetic letters to replace these things. Really cool. In fact, it was the inspiration for the writing system in Elantris. If you guys have ever read Elantris, we've got these aeons that are these really kind of interesting characters that are surrounded by, if you read in the book, they're like, you'll drop one of these things in, but then you'll have a whole sentence that only has like one or two of them in it. That's based on how you'll see Koreans writing Chinese. Once in a while, they'll drop in the Chinese character because they look cool. Right, or they'll use they'll write their names in Chinese characters. They're like, my name's cool, um, and stuff like that. And that became the inspiration for that whole writing system, and even kind of the way the magic works in that book. Um, so Sejong he gets this whole thing together. It's now widely considered one of the best written alphabets ever created. Uh, you can learn to read Korean in about an hour. Now it'll make no sense to you because you're reading Korean, but you'll actually be able to read it. It's really nifty. In fact, there's all sorts of cool things like he made the characters like imitate the sounds or the shape of your mouth when you're making the sounds, all this kind of cool stuff. Um, so he presents it to his scholars and the nobility, and they hated it. <laughs> they hated it, which is very weird to me. In fact, I've got a quote written in the 1400s by one of these scholars. Um, who said, how could this not be a setback to our cult civilization? Spending too much thought and effort on this is a waste of time, detrimental to the timely pursuit of scholarship. Why would they hate this? Because they already know how to read it. You've got it. The, I, the thing that was going on then is during this time in Confucian society, if you could pass the test to become a scholar, you got the really cool jobs in the uh, government rather than like working in the fields. And they did not like the fact that the average person could learn to read because of this. They, in fact, hated it. There was huge resistance. Like a king, several, uh, like about 100 years after Sejong, banned it for this reason, but it was already too ingrained in the culture. Everyone was starting to read to the point that, you know, Korea is one of the most literate countries on the planet, even to this day, because of this. And they all credit Sejong, so why he's on the dollar bill and things like that. It's really cool. But this thing about people not wanting people to read 
is something that's always stuck with me when I first learned about the story and read about it. And it's actually not limited to Korea. If you read about the translation of the Bible into English, how many people got burned at the stake uh, for trying to translate the Bible into English? Um, You can actually read about opposition to literacy programs in the United States during the um, 19th century and things like this. It seems like there's like this, this long tradition of people not wanting other people to read. Because reading is power. Um, And, you know, you're like, oh, great, this is a history lesson, Brandon. Korean's cool, but what does this have to relate? What does it have to do with you, like, traveling to Sharjah and things like that? Well, I think we still kind of do this today, but we do it in a different way. Let me read to you um, a paragraph written from a blog I was was reading um, a couple months back. This is by a woman named Bonnie Burton. As a geek girl... I've been accused of wearing a Star Wars shirt to get attention from guys. I've been told to move to the side and let real gamers play the demos at conventions. Lately, it seems the geek community have become a lot less of a welcome wagon and more a judgmental council or judgmental Jedi council that refuses to let newbies in, especially if they happen to be girls. In a community once known for celebrating outcasts and underdogs, it sometimes now seems like you have to take some sort of void comp test to prove your geekdom is legit. Yeah, you catch that? Yeah, uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a Blade Runner reference. That is super nerdy. Um, yeah. Um, you know, and you know, I'm not really trying to talk about, like, really our culture. I'm more talking about the books. Um, and I realized I've been guilty of something, which is making fun of people for reading the wrong books. Like, how many of you have maybe sometimes made fun of people for reading Twilight? Right? Yeah. Um, or, yeah. Or Aragon? Aragon? Like, we do this, right? And it's just natural to us because we're like, our culture, geek culture, fantasy and science fiction has become like this mainstream thing. And so it's like, everyone's like, I'm going to go see the new Avengers film. And you're like, I read about Iron Man when I was 14 and nobody knew who he was. Um, You're not a real geek, I am. Um, This is very natural to us. It's almost like we're circling the wagons a little bit. And I just wanted to kind of point this out because I've seen myself doing it. And I'm like, why am I making fun of people for reading books when they obviously love them and are getting the same thing from them that pulled me into this genre? I, I became a reader at age 14 because a teacher handed me a fantasy book, Dragon's Bane, Barbara Hambly. And I just completely got sucked in, and I became an uber nerd for those books and for the Anne McCaffrey books that were next to them on the bookshelf. Um, And why do I have the sense that I need to make fun of what someone else is reading to try to get them to enjoy what I'm reading? So I guess my my suggestion is, you know, to, to remember this idea. Remember that we're all part of the same tribe. We're all part of the same community. It doesn't matter if we live in the middle of the desert on the Arabian Peninsula or in Denver, Colorado. We are readers. We love books. We love stories. And maybe next time somebody's reading something that you're like, what in the world? Might I suggest that you read it? You don't have to like it. I'm not saying you can't criticize books. You totally can. Scholarship is important. Criticism is important. It's important to say, this works for me. This doesn't work for me. This is maybe why. I'm not talking about scholarship. I'm talking about shaming. 
right? And those are two different things. Maybe read it. You don't have to like it. But in reading that book, search for why they like it. And I think you will get so much out of figuring out why someone else loves something that you don't that it will kind of prove the point of reading in the first place, which is to get to know people that are different from you. And that is my speech. And now you can go tell everybody about King Sejong and prove how smart you are. <laughs> All right, let's do a Q&A. Um, like I said, we'll do this for like 10 or 15 minutes, and I like to do these by section. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start over here with everyone seated, and then I'll go over everyone standing, and then I'll go to the back one, seated, then standing. Does that make sense? So seated right here, who, who has a question for me? Go for it. Yes. How does it feel to be compared favorably to authors like Terry Brooks and David Eddings, um, who I read when I was a teenager and was just like, oh, these guys are so awesome. Um, Man, it is really weird, (laughs) right? It is super weird because I spent all this time like trying to break in just so that my – I would – I just wanted to write books, right? I didn't want to have to become like an insurance salesman. So I kept thinking, if I can make like, I can probably make like 20 grand a year and make it work, right? Like that, I'm like, if I can do that, if I can just make this work, and now to look and have it, it's, it's a little bit more than 20 grand a year, uh, <laughs> to, to have things have taken off to the extent they have, it, it is really mind-blowing. And it makes me feel really humbled, um, right? Because I remember how I felt as a kid looking at those authors as like these far-off, you know, geniuses, and I'm like... Now people are regarding me that, me that way, and they're wrong, but they are, so how do I deal with that? It's really weird. All right, you had a question. Yes. Does your vocabulary change when you're working on different books? Does my vocabulary when I'm working on different books? Yes, it does. Um, it does indeed. And it really depends on the character I'm in. Um, that's going to that's gonna influence things more than anything else or, or the voice. And um, the character I'm in, the word choices they use are very important to me for defi- defining who they are as a character. So Wayne is going to feel very different from Shalon. Oh, when I'm talking to other people. Um, it, I, I, I get knocked out of it pretty quickly. If you find me like after I've been writing for a few hours, it'll change for just a little while. And then I'll get knocked out of it and back to, back to me. But Harriet, uh, Robert Jordan's wife, would share a story about how she could always tell what character he'd been writing by the way he acted. He <laughs> Ask her for this one. She, ta- he talks about Pat- she talks about Pat and Fan. He's kind of like this weaselly little guy. She would say, like, Robert Jordan would, like, slink into the house, uh, <laughs> like, crouching down and stuff. It's hilarious. Um, all right. Let's do another question in the back right there. We'll do both of you. We'll go to the young man and then you. Yeah. How do I avoid overanalyzing what I've written? Well, that's really hard. Um, practice. Um, uh, giving myself deadlines for when a revision should be done and letting it be done. Um, kind of listening to my beta readers is a, is a good help to that. It's really this challenge of turning off the internal editor. Um, turning the internal editor off while you're writing the first draft is very important. Uh, after that draft, you have to just turn off the editor after you're 
no longer capable of working on the book. Like there is, you hit a point in a book where you're not making the book better. You're making it like the same. You're making it different. You know, it's just not getting better. It's um, and that's usually for me after about four revisions. Um, but I've just kind of come to learn that that's where it is. And it, it is really good to just have a deadline. I have to be done with it by this time. Um, but I was it Da Vinci who said art is never finished; it's only abandoned. And you kind of just have to get used to that idea. You could always tweak your work. Uh, you got to let go of it at some point. All right. This young person had a question. How, how do I masterize so many books? <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, they're clapping for that. Brandon, do you have, have robots writing your books in the basement? Um, so, here's the thing I do my job. Every day, and this is what comes out. Um, and I think it's really that I'm I'm blessed and lucky to have a very stable psychology. Um, a lot of artists that you run into, they're like you know they're binge writers. They got to feel the muse and whatnot. And I'm not like that. I get excited about my writing every day. I sit down, I'm like, oh, this is gonna be great, and I write it. Um, and I've done that for 20 years now. And so I don't actually consider myself that fast a writer. I'm just very consistent. Um, I write about 2,000 words a day. It's about what Stephen King says he does. Um, and that, that became my goal because of that. That's what I write. And if you do 2,000 words a day, five days a week, that's 10,000 words a week. That's 500 and whatever, um, then 20,000 words in a year, right? And even taking time off to tour and stuff like that, that's 400,000 words. It's what I look to play with. That's the length of one Stormlight book, or it's the length of two Mistborn books, one Alcatraz book. Uh, no, serious. One Reckoner's book and a novella. <laughs> yeah. So if you can't tell, we're in the middle of the two <laughs> Mistborn books, the one Reckoner's book, the Alcatraz book, and the novella, because I wrote those all in the same time it takes me to write one Stormlight book. You want to ask when the next Stormlight books can come out? Is that... Okay, okay, okay. I mean, I would like to know that, but that's not my question. Okay. So, Denver Comic Con is top three Comic Con. It's a good Comic Con. I need to be invited by the Comic Con people. So, you need to go to them and be like, get Brandon to come to your Comic Con. Um, And then I'll come. I'm going to Phoenix um, next year. Um, I might be able to make it to Denver in the near future, but they got to invite me. Uh, that's how Comic-Cons go. You don't just show up and be like, I'm here. <laughs> um, Comic-Cons are very, you know, they have a certain number of slots and a certain number of tables and things like that. So, so we, well, we did a couple of the, um, the panels, and they were kind of a Okay, my name's getting thrown out at Comic-Con. That's good. That's a good thing. We like that. All right, the standing crowd. Standing up. All right, right here. Yes. How do I come up with the little things that uh, at the beginnings of books that seem innocent and then are really important? Um, a good outlining. I, I'm an outliner. I like to know where I'm going in my book, and I like to have my ending prepared. And I don't like to write a book until I know what about that ending is going to make people make people feel. What's what are the emotions? What's the impact of it? And then I can start foreshadowing. It does take a lot of practice. My early books were not as good at this. You didn't read those. They're bad. <laughs> All right, green hat dude. 
Oh, good question. Do I have stuff mapped out in my office when I'm writing something? I have it all mapped out in my head and in a wiki, a personal wiki that uh, is only accessible by me and my assistants. Um, and that's where we keep most of it these days because the Cosmere is getting increasingly intricate and complex. So, All right, right there. Which character do I relate to the most? Oh, wow. It depends on the mood I'm in. Um, I think I've related to all of them at one point. Um, I often answer this question with Seizeg because he kind of feels like me a little bit, but he's not nearly as arrogant as I am, so it's like half Seizeg, half Gelsier. Um, <laughs> hopefully without the psychopathic murdering side. Um, so, All right, right here. Where do I look for artistic inspiration other than real life and history? That's it. <laughs> other than most of the places. Um, I, I do often, a lot of my stories have come from watching or reading a piece of media and being like, oh, they did it wrong. I mean, like, I can do that, right? Um, or it's, it's not even like that. It's the what ifs. Like, Mistborn came from the what if of, like, reading Harry Potter and being like, wow, these Dark Lords never get a break. It's always some, like, doofus kid who shows up and is like, ah, I kill you. Um, Aha, I threw your ring in a hole. Um, right? <laughs> what am I going to do? <laughs> there was a hole. <laughs> um, and so I wanted to write a story where the Dark Lord won. Um, where, you know, the initial pitch to myself was like, you know, what if Frodo showed up and Sauron's like, hey, my ring, thanks for bringing that back. I've been looking for it <laughs> all this time. <laughs> um, and so, and then the Dark Lord took over the world. And so that's kind of, you can say, I mean, I love Lord of the Rings. I'm making fun of it, but you, you mock what you love, right? A Grandpa Tolkien's story is awesome. Um, but I'm like, you know, the what if. What if the Dark Lord won, right? Um, and so a lot of my stories will come from ideas like that. People I meet... Uh, random things that I read in uh, science magazines and stuff like that. A lot of that kind of gets in my head and bounces around there and that sort of thing. All right, we're going to go to, uh, we're going to do the middle part in the back. People sitting or standing in the middle part. Yes, in the striped shirt. Oh, the <laughs> oh David's bad metaphors. Yes, David. So there's a great story. If you haven't read Steelheart, it's in first person, and the main character of Steelheart is just really bad at metaphors, like really, really bad. Um, and this came because I was writing the first chapter, and I was kind of searching for his voice. If you don't know, I, I tend to plot my books in it intricately, build the worlds a lot ahead of time, and then try to discover the characters, to give this book still have that sense of life and spontaneity that you get from kind of what we call discovery writing. Um, and then I kind of give them control over the plot. And so I will often have to rebuild my outline as I know who the character is and what they're doing. And I'm, I'm searching for David's voice, and I wrote this really bad metaphor, because you do that as a writer. You're like, oh, this was, no, that's dumb. That's so... And this time I'm like, what if I run with that, right? <laughs> Let's just run with it. Let's just go with it. Um, and so I tried to make each one top the one before. Um, and it turns out writing bad metaphors on purpose is really hard. <laughs> writing them on accident happens all the time. But if you want to write something that's, you know, really a bad metaphor, it, it takes some work. So I actually had to go to Inspiration for There's Contest for the worst metaphors. Uh, like one, one university held them for a few years. And I went and read a bunch of those. I'm like, these are great. All right. I'm in the bad metaphor mindset. Um, and that's like where you get metaphors like she was perkier than a sack full of caffeinated puppies. 
That's book three coming at you. All right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> How do I make my world so realistic? Um, that is probably bigger than I can get into in uh, this talk, but I do have a podcast. Have you by chance listened to that? Podcast is called Writing Excuses, um, and it is 15 minutes a week. Oh, thank you for those who listen to it. Um, it is 15 minutes a week of writing advice, and you can go find some of the world-building ones and look into those. Um, and I also have um, – I've got some little um, – what do you call it? Bookmarks that have the URL on them, so you can pick one of those up from me. I'll have to send them the runner up to get them because I forgot them in my bag. But um, I also have my write, university writing lectures are on my website. They are linked at brandonsanders.com slash writing dash advice. And that is my full university course over at BYU. When they ask me if I teach it, um, I'm like, I'm really busy, but I will teach it if you let me record it, put it online for people. So you can you can actually take like the whole course. Um, and there's there's like two or three periods that are like two hours long each on world building, okay? All right, uh, bald gentleman. Okay. Do I have any input on the readers of my books? Um, I do. I can ask for a specific reader, or I can kind of audition readers who say, who are you thinking? Send me three and pick the one I like. That is something I get to do nowadays that I didn't get used to do, which is why we're re-recording Warbreaker. <laughs> so if anyone's listened to that one, we are doing a new version of that, because uh, that was before I was able to kind of get as much... Uh, Tor really likes me now, my publisher. <laughs> Like, uh, you have no idea. Like, when Robert Jordan passed away, like, he paid for the company, right, his books. Um, and they were sure that that was, like, the end of it. And then um, the Wheel of Time books that I wrote uh, actually sold very, very well. Um, and each Wheel of Time book so far had sold more than the one before it, and the ones I wrote continued that trend. And so during that period, they just loved me. Um, and they still do. The Stormlight books do very well as well. Um, and so they, they let me get away with a whole bunch of stuff. And if you look in a Stormlight book, you'll see all the stuff I'm getting away with. Because <laughs> I, I remember years ago, Tom Doherty, the CEO, saying, I'm never going to do colored end pages in a book again like the Wheel of Time books. It's so expensive. It's been such a pain. Um, and so when they were like, oh, Brandon's great, I'm like, hey, can I have colored end pages? They're like, yeah, whatever you want. It's great. <laughs> so, so, yeah, and, and then we can be like, hey, can you re-record this? They're like, yeah, Brandon, yay. Um, so, all right, right over here. Character that annotates the maps. Yes, not Naz. Naz. Naz Roloff. Uh, that's Rafo. <laughs> Nazarloff. Oh, good old Nazarloff. Um, so, yes, there's a character who's annotating the maps. And if you watch through um, the Cosmere books, you will occasionally see him on screen. Um, usually people are complaining about him stealing stuff from them, like getting their maps or whatnot. So um, that's fun. All right, we're going to do this group right here. And you've had your hand up for a while. Uh, what was your inspiration for Wayne? What was my inspiration for Wayne? Um, boy, it's hard to say what my inspiration for Wayne was because I wrote... I originally tried writing a short story about Wayne. That's where Alloy of Law came from. I tried this short story. It didn't work. He didn't work as a main character. So then I backed up and said, okay, I'm going to build more characters, but then I'm going to have to expand the arc to become a novel-length thing. Um, I would say one part loving writing Matt from The Wheel of Time and not being able to write Matt anymore because, you know, when The Wheel of Time is done – 
no more no more writing those characters. So I wouldn't say like Wayne is uh, you know came from Matt, but the love I had of writing Matt, I'm like I need a character I love writing that much to kind of get me over the fact that I won't be able to write Matt anymore. Um, and you know, I, like every scoundrel that I've ever written has a little bit of Matt in him, right? <laughs> I mean, that's just that's just it, that what's happened when you read the Wheel of Time from age fourteen on. Um, uh, otherwise, I was uh, I was just kind of looking at roles I hadn't filled in kind of the heist group. Um, even though the Alloy books don't have the full heist group, like the original pitch for myself for Mistborn um, books is you can get this little heist crew, this team. And I hadn't had the impersonator guy, really. I'd had the Chondra, but never really a viewpoint character who was doing cool stuff with that. And I'm like, I want to play with this kind of street thief impersonator. Um, Sherlock Holmes did a lot of that. If, if you read the original Sherlock Holmes stories, he was always doing disguises. Um, and I was building kind of this Sherlock Holmesian thing, and so I'm like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put some of that in. So... All right, right here. Mm-hmm. Will there be another writing at Chusa's Retreat? We are probably going to continue to do them on cruises. Um, and we're going to, I'm pretty sure we're doing one next year. The reason we're doing them on cruises is because when we did them at Mary's parents' house, number one, it's parents' house. It's kind of hard to do. They have like a little estate with like two houses on the, and so it's, it's okay. But they're, we had to like make sure there were dietary ne- everyone's dietary needs, and so at one point we were like having a kosher dish, um, we were having a gluten free dish, a dairy free dish, and a vegetarian dish, and we're like, this is just crazy. Um, and the cruise ship will just do all that for us. So, uh, so but yes, there should be one next year as well. About the same price. About the same price. The same price. Yep. All right, we're gonna jump in the back. Yes, it was you. You just turned. Yes, yes, right there. You looked back behind yourself twice. Yep. <laughs> Uh, good question. Yeah, it's stuff I can talk about now. So how much leeway did I have with the Wheel of Time books? So when I um, sat, when I, I took the project, I didn't know what was written. Um, I just had to say yes or no. I went to Harriet's house and he delivered me the materials. And what that was was about 100 pages of written prose and about 100 pages of Q&As with the assistants with some outline stuff thrown in. Um, so most of that written prose ended up in the prologues of the three books or the epilogue of the last book. Um, and you can find Robert Jordan's writing in each of those. Uh, most of the outlining was about Egwene, with a bit about Matt and a bit about Rand. Um, and so Perrin, there was not a word on. Um, so Perrin, uh, so if you're reading along and it's Perrin, it's, it's me. If you're reading Egwene, it's probably Robert Jordan. Um, he even wrote some of her scenes, um, like the scene where she gets a special visitor um, in the, the book that you know, reveals something. He wrote that scene, right? Um, he, he, wrote, he wrote a big chunk of the Tower of Genji scenes. Um, but I had to do about half of Matt, 75% of Rand, um, and about 100% of Perrin. About, roughly. <laughs> so it was, it was a big project. Um, and it's why they didn't hire a ghostwriter, why they actually hired somebody who, you know, they said, you're going to be the co-writer. And Harry just gave me all this stuff and said, I'm an editor. If you write it, then I can help you fix it. But you got to write it first. And so I had complete creative control, which was really interesting, at least in first drafts. Now, second drafts, it was Harriet's control back. She'd say, we got to take this out. We got to move this. And when Harriet spoke, we just, we just did it. I mean, I don't know if you know who Harriet is, but she was the editor of Ender's Game, uh, The Black Company, uh, some of the Fred Saberhagen Swords books. Like She was, uh, she was a major editor uh, before she discovered Robert Jordan, married him, and retired um, and worked only on his books. So... <laughs> 
you just, you just do what Harriet says, even if you're not working on a Wheel of Time book. If Harriet just walks up to you and says something, you just do it. Um, so, all right, we're going to do blue hair. Right. The, so the notes at the end of Warbreaker that explain my thought process. So this is the, um, the annotations. Um, I've done that for the original Mistborn trilogy, but not much else. Um, that, that, that I used to do when I had to do my copy edits, which were mind-numbingly boring, and now Peter, my assistant, does those. And so we've kind of slotted me into working on something new during that time instead of writing the annotations. So I'd like to do more, but the, the timing is just not working for it. So we'll see if, if any more happens. All right, right there, and we're going to the standing up group over here for just a couple more questions. Go ahead. Hey, oh, it's you. Hey, Denver Paul, how you doing? <laughs> hey, he's a friend. <laughs> how did my experiment with the Creative Commons, if you don't know, I released Warbreaker for free on my website as I was writing it and then released a final edition once it was done. Um, I think it was very good. I like what it did. I like the idea of people being able to read that and being able to, um, to try me out on a book before they have to buy something. But yeah, um, I, uh, I think Tor would let me do it again, but at the same time, I'm a much bigger author now, so we'll have to see. I think it was worth it. But we are running out of time. i take one last question in the pink. Is Hoyt a Time Lord? <laughs> Great question. Hoyt is not a Time Lord, but, um, but I, I have watched some Doctor Who, who, so who knows if some of that was in the back of my head um, working on that. All right, so I'm going to do a few quick announcements, then we'll do the reading. And I'm sorry I'm running behind for those who wanted to take off. Feel free to take off at any point if you're going to gym signing. I'm not going to be offended. Um, so we've already talked about pictures. Um, We've already talked about these guys right here that you can pick up if you need to leave. They're pre-signed. Um, oh, my thing went away. Um, I wanted to give a thank you to the bookstore. I love local bookstores like this. I've been to the Tattered many times. They've always treated me wonderfully. Um, and so I, and I thank you guys for supporting them. Um, you know, sometimes it's cheaper to get your books online or something, but online bookstores do not have to keep a space like this and employ wonderful people like this gentleman who can let us have the book signing. And so thank you for supporting them, and thank you guys for having me in. All right, I'm going to do the reading, and the reading's maybe 15 minutes long, so those who are wanting to get to gym signing, you may just want to go, or you could just stay, because it's going to be from Stormlight 3. Yeah, uh, that's all right, you got to go, it's fine, those are pre-signed. No, no, crying babies, crying babies, we understand. I have many of them myself, and they don't stop even when they get older, it's kind of weird. So, I am going to read to you from um, the first of the Dalinar flashback sequences. What's nice about this is that it doesn't um, have spoilers in it for the rest of the series, um, because it takes place many years before the book starts. Um, and so, let's see, which one am I going to... One of the tricks with the Stormlight books is I never leave, put enough spren in, and the first, uh, the first times I'm writing, like once I've gotten into the book and I'm writing, 
then the spreads start coming out naturally. But in the first drafts coming from another book, you know, they, they aren't always there. So you may not see quite enough spren in this. Um, if you aren't familiar with what I'm doing with the Stormlight books, I've got this thing where I'm trying to... Um, I'm trying to do this thing where I'm having a different flashback sequence from each character per book for a different character, um, which what let me do is like each book kind of has a theme based around what the characters' uh, flashbacks are, how they got to where the first book started. And so the idea is like you'll have a theme um, for each book. You're like, which book was that? Because like if you read this big fantasy book, you're like, book seven, what was that again? And like they blend together a bit. But if you're like, oh, that was such and such book. Oh, I can, anyway. Uh, it's one of my one of my things that crazy things I'm coming up with. I love the epic fantasy genre, and hopefully this will just help give this a different sort of feel. So here we are, Dalinar flashback one. Rockbuds crunched like skulls beneath Dalinar's boots as he charged across the burning field. His elites tromped behind him, a hand-picked force of soldiers, both light-eyed and dark. They weren't an honor guard. Dalinar didn't need guards. These were simply the men he considered competent enough not to embarrass him. Around him, rockbuds smoldered. Moss dried from the summer heat and long days between storms this time of year flared up in waves, setting the rockbud shells themselves aflame. Dalinar charged the smoke, trusting in his padded armor and thick boots to protect him. Flamespren, like tiny people made of fire, danced from one patch of fire to the next. The enemy, pressed by his armies from the north, had pulled back into this town just ahead. Dalinar had held himself back with difficulty from entering that initial clash. He'd known the real fighting would take place here, in the city. He hadn't expected the enemy to, in a desperate move, fire this plane, burning their own crops to block the southern approach. Well, no matter. The fires could go to damnation for all Dalinar cared. He led his men in a charge, and though some were overwhelmed by the smoke or heat, most stayed with him. They'd crashed into the, uh, they'd crash into the enemy from the south, pressing them between his men and the main army. Hammer and anvil, the best kind of tactic, the type that didn't allow his enemies to get away. As Dalinar burst from the smoky air, he found a few lines of spearmen hastily making ranks on the southern edge of the town. There were remnants of a wall, but the enemy he fought had torn that down themselves a few years back when conquering here. Dalinar had forgotten the town name, but the location was ideal. A large ridge to the east made a natural break from the storms and had allowed this place to sprawl almost like a real city. Dalinar screamed at the enemy soldiers, beating his sword, just a regular longsword, against his shield. He wore a sturdy breastplate and helm along with iron-lined boots. The spearmen ahead of him wavered as as elites roared from the smoke and flame, shouting a bloodthirsty cacophony. A few of the spearmen dropped their weapons and ran. Fearspren, globs of violet goo, wiggled up in mass around the enemy rank, and Dalinar grinned. He didn't need shards to intimidate. He hit the swordsman like a boulder rolling through a grove of saplings, swinging his sword and sending limbs into the air. A good fight was about momentum. Don't stop. Don't think. Drive forward and convince your enemies that they were as good as dead already. That way they'd fight less as you sent them to their pyres. As he waited among them, the spearmen thrust spears frantically, less trying to kill him and more trying to push away this madman. Their ranks collapsed, and many of the men turned to their side, turned their sides to Dalinar's men. They were focused only on him. Dalinar laughed, slamming aside a pair of spears with a shield, then disemboweling one man with a sword deep into the gut. The man's allies backed away at the horrific sight, so Dalinar came in swinging, catching the two off balance, killing them with a sword that bore their friend's blood. 
Dalinar's elites decimated the now broken line and the real slaughter began. Dalinar pushed forward, keeping momentum, shearing through the ranks until he reached the back, breathing deeply and wiping ashen sweat from his face. A young spearman fell before him, crying, screaming for his mother as he crawled across the stony ground, trailing blood. Fearsbren mixed with painsbren all around. Dalinar shook his head, picking up a fallen spear and striding past the youth, slamming it down into the boy's back as he passed. Men often cried for their parents as they died. It didn't matter how old they were. He'd seen graybeards do it, same as kids like this one. He's not much younger than I, Dalinar thought. Maybe seventeen. But then, Dalinar had never felt young, regardless of his age. His elites filled in behind him, having carved the enemy line in two. Dalinar danced, shaking off his bloodied blade, feeling alert, excited, but not yet alive. Where was it? Come on. A larger group of soldiers hiked down the street toward him, led by a small group of officers in white and red. Dalinar could see from the way they pulled up, alarmed that they hadn't expected their spearmen to fall so quickly. Dalinar charged. His elites, elites knew to watch, and so he was followed by a force of 50 or 60. The rest had to finish off the unfortunate spearmen. Well, 50 would do. The crowded confines of the town would mean Dalinar shouldn't need more. As he neared this newer force, he focused his attention on the one man riding a horse. The fellow wore plate armor, obviously meant to recreate, recreate shard plate, though it was only of common steel. It lacked the beauty, the power of true plate. He still looked like he was the most important person around. Hopefully, that would mean he was the best. The man's honor guard rushed to engage, and Dalinar felt something stir inside of him, like a thirst, a physical need. Challenge. He needed a challenge, Stormit. He engaged the first member of the guard, attacking with a swift brutality. Fighting on the battlefield wasn't like in the dueling arena. Dalinar didn't dance around the fellow, testing his abilities. Out here, that sort of thing got you stabbed in the back by somebody else. Instead, Dalinar slammed his sword down against his enemy, who raised his shield to block. Dalinar hit a series of quick, powerful strokes, like a drummer pounding a furious beat. Bam, 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 bam! The enemy soldier didn't have an opportunity to mount a counterattack. He clutched his shield over his head, putting Dalinar squarely in control. Dalinar kept hitting as he raised his own shield before him and shoved it against the man, forcing him back until he stumbled. The man's shield shifted, letting Dalinar's sword come down at an angle and bite him in the upper arm. The shield dropped completely, and this man didn't get a chance to cry for his mother. Dalinar let his elites handle the others. The way was open to the Bright Lord. Not old enough to be the High Prince. Some other important light eyes? Or didn't Dalinar remember something about a son during Gavilar's endless planning meetings? Well, this man certainly looked grand on that white mare, watching the battle behind a helmed face, cape streaming out behind him. Dalinar pulled up, swiping his sword eagerly, breathing in and out. The foe raised his sword to his helm in a sign of challenge accepted. Idiot. <laughs> Dalinar raised his shield arm and pointed, counting on at least one of his strikers to have lived and stayed with him. Indeed, Jenin stepped up, unhooked the short bow from his back, and, as the Bright Lord shouted his surprise, shot the horse in the chest. Hate shooting horses, Jenin grumbled as the beast reared in pain. Like throwing a thousand bromes into the storming ocean, Bright Lord. I'll buy you two when, we're fi when we finish this, Dalinar said as the lord fell backward, tumbling off his horse. Dalinar dodged around flashing hooves and snorts of pain, seeking out the fallen man. He was pleased to find the enemy rising. Dalinar came in swinging. The bright lord managed to get his sword up, and Dalinar battered it away, then dropped his own shield and came in with a two-handed power swing, intending to knock the light-eyed soldier back down. Fortunately, the man was good enough to recover his stance and intercept the blow with his shield. They probably heard the subsequent crack all the way back in Kolinar. Indeed, it vibrated up Dalinar's arms. Momentum. 
Life was about momentum. Pick a direction and don't let anything, man or storm, turn you aside. Dalinar battered at his enemy, driving him backward until a man pulled a surprise feint and managed to get in close to ram Dalinar with his shield. Dalinar ducked the blow that followed, but the backhand hit him soundly on the side of the head, sending him stumbling. His helm twisted, metal bent by the blow, biting into his scalp, drawing blood. He saw double, double vision swimming. He roared as the Lord smartly came in for the kill. Dalinar swung his blade up in a lurching, full-shouldered blow, slapping the Lord's own weapon out of his hands. The man then punched Dalinar in the face with a gauntlet, and his nose crunched. Dalinar fell to his knees, vision blurry. His foe was breathing deeply, cursing between breaths, winded by the short, frantic contest. The bright lord fished at his belt for a knife. An emotion stirred inside Dalinar, a fire that filled the pit inside. It washed through him and awakened him, bringing clarity. The sounds of his elites fighting the lord's honor guard faded, metal on metal becoming clinks, grunts becoming like a distant humming. Dalinar grinned. Then that grin became a toothy smile. His vision returned as the lord, who had just retrieved his knife, looked up and started, stumbling back. He seemed horrified. Dalinar roared, spitting blood and throwing himself at the enemy. The swing that came for him seemed pitiful, and Dalinar ducked it, throwing his shoulder against his foe and shoving him backward. Something thrummed inside Dalinar, the pulse of the battle, the rhythm of killing and dying, the thrill. He knocked his opponent off balance and reached for his sword. Dim, however, hollered his name and tossed him a poleaxe with hook on one side and broad, thin axe on the other. Dalinar seized it from the air and spun, ducking the lord's attack. At the same time, he hooked the man around the ankle with the axe head and yanked. The bright lord fell in a clatter of steel. Before Dalinar could attack further, unfortunately, the honor guard became a bother. Two men had managed to extricate themselves from Dalinar's men and came to the defense of their bright lord. Dalinar caught their sword strikes on his polearm and twisted it about, backing away and bringing the axe head, uh, axe head sl- slamming into one man's side. He ripped it free and spun again, smashing the weapon down against the rising lord's head and sending him to his knees. Before coming back and catching the other guard's sword on the half of the polearm, Dalinar pushed upward, holding the polearm in two arm, arm hands, sweeping the guard's blade up in the air over his head and stepping forward until he's face to face with the fellow. Then Dalinar spit blood from his shattered nose into the guard's face and kicked him in the stomach. He turned toward the lord who had scrambled again to his feet and now was trying to flee. Dalinar growled and swung the polearm by one hand, hooking the spike into the lord's side and yanking, dropping him a third time. The bright lord rolled. He was greeted by the sight of Dalinar, slamming his polearm down by two hands, driving the spike right through the breastplate and into the chest. It made a satisfying crunch, and Dalinar pulled it out bloodied. The blow seemed a signal of sorts, and the honor guard and other soldiers finally broke before his elites. Dalinar grinned as he watched them go, glory spread popping up around him like glowing golden spheres. His men took out their short bows and dropped a good dozen of the fleeing enemy in the backs. Damnation, it felt good to best a force larger than your own. The thrill dwindled. He could never seem to hold on to it as long as he wanted. Nearby, the man he'd felled croaked softly. Dalinar stepped over, curious, kicking at the armored chest. Why? the man said from within his helm. Why us? Don't know, Dalinar said, tossing the polearm back to Dim. You, you don't know? My brother chooses, Dalinar said. I just go where he points me. He gestured toward the dying man, and Dim rammed a sword into the hole in the breastplate, finishing the job. The fellow had fought reasonably well, no need to extend his suffering. Another soldier approached, approached, handing Dalinar his sword. It had a chip the size of a thumb right in the blade. Looked like it had bent as well. 
You're supposed to stick it in the squishy parts, Bright Lord, Dim said. <laughs> Not pounded against the hard parts. I'll keep that in mind, Dalinar said, tossing the sword aside, as one of his men selected a replacement from among the fallen men of high enough rank. You all right, Bright Lord? Dim asked. Never been better, Dalinar said, then sucked blood up through his broken nose. Hurt like damnation itself. His men formed up around him, officers nearby, and Dalinar led the way further down the street. Before too long, he could make out the bulk of the enemy, still fighting up ahead, harried by his army. He halted his men, contemplative. Order, sir? Thaka, captain of the elites, asked. Raid those buildings, Dalinar said, pointing to the line of homes. Let's see how well they fight while they see us rounding up their families. The men will want to loot. What is there to loot in a hovel like this, Dalinar said. Soggy hogshide and old rockbud bulls? He pulled off his helm to wipe the blood from his face. They can loot afterward. Right now I need hostages. There are civilians somewhere in this storming town. Find them. Thaka nodded, shouting the orders. Dalinar reached for some water. He'd need to meet up with Sadius and... Something slammed into Dalinar's shoulder. He caught only a brief sight of it, a black blur that hit the, with the force of a roundhouse kick. It threw him down and pain flared up from his side. An arrow? He said, blinking as he found himself lying on the ground. A storming arrow sprouted from his right shoulder with a long, thick shaft. It had gone right through the, through the uh, chain. My lord, Thaka said, kneeling, shielding Dalinar with his body. Clack, my lord, are you... Who in damnation shot that? Dalinar demanded. Up there, one of his men said, pointing at the ridge above the town. It's got to be over 300 yards, Dalinar said, shoving Thaka aside and standing. That can't... He was watching, so he was able to jump out of the way of the next arrow, which dropped a mere foot from him, slamming against the stone ground. Dalinar stared at it, then started shouting, Horses! Horses! Where are my storming horses? Had the fires delayed them? No, fortunately. A small group of soldiers had guided them more carefully across the fields, but had caught up by now. They stood with the rear guard of the elites and came trotting forward as Dalinar's orders were passed, bringing all eleven horses. Dalinar had to dodge another arrow as he seized the reins of full knight in his black gelding and heaved himself up into the saddle. He galloped back the way they come in, trailed by ten of his best men. There had to be a way up that slope. There, a rocky set of switchbacks, shallow enough that he didn't mind pulling, running full knight up them. No more dangerous than charging to the battle had been for Dalinar himself. The horse slipped a few times, but nothing drastic. Dalinar was more worried that by the time he reached the top, his quarry would have escaped. He burst onto the top of the ridge. An arrow slammed into his right side, going straight through the breastplate, nearly throwing him from the saddle. Damnation! He hung on somehow, clenching the reins in one hand and leaning low, watching his head as the archer, still a distant figure, stood on a rocky knob and launched another arrow, and another. Storms, the fellow was quick! Dalinar jerked full knight to one side, then the other, feeling the thrumming sense of the thrill return. Hooves made a clatter on stone as another arrow zipped past his face, dangerously close. Ahead, the archer finally seemed to grow alarmed and leapt from his perch to flee. Dalinar charged full knight over that lip a moment later, jumping the horse after to follow the fleeing archer, who turned out to be a man in his twenties wearing rugged clothing. Dalinar had the option to run him down, but instead galloped full knight right past and kicked the archer in the back, sending him sprawling. Dalinar pulled up his horse, then turned it about to pass by the groaning archer, who lay in a heap amid spilled black arrows. Dalinar's men caught up as he climbed roughly from the saddle, an arrow sprouting from each shoulder. He seized the archer, who had finally struggled to his feet and was, mo- was scrambling, dazed for his belt knife. Dalinar turned the fellow about, noting the blue tattoo on his cheek. The archer gasped, staring at Dalinar, covered in soot from the flames, face a mask of blood from the nose, stuck with not one, but two arrows. 
You waited until my helm was off, Dalinar demanded. You're an assassin. You were sent here specifically to watch for me. The man winced as Dalinar gripped him hard and then nodded. Amazing, Dalinar said, letting go of the fellow. Show me that shot again. How far is that, Thaka? I'm right, aren't I? Over 300 yards? Almost four, Thaka said, but with a height advantage. Still, Dalinar said, stepping up to the lip of the ridge. He looked back at the befuddled archer. Well, grab your bow. My bow, the archer said. Are you deaf? Dalinar snapped. Go get it. The man regarded the ten armed men on horseback, grim-faced and dangerous, before wisely deciding to obey. He picked up his bow and a few arrows, then stepped hesitantly over to Dalinar, giving one glance to the similar shafts that were stuck into him. Went right through my storming armor, Dalinar muttered, shading his eyes. To his right, the armies clashed, and his main body of elites had come up to press the flank. The rear guard had found some civilians and was shoving them out into the streets. They'd know to search out the light eyes. Pick a body, Dalinar said, pointing toward an empty square where a skirmish had happened. Stick an arrow in one if you can. The archer licked his lips, still seeming confused. Finally, he took a spyglass off his belt and studied the area. The one in blue, he finally said, near that overturned cart. Dalinar squinted, then nodded. Nearby, Thaka had climbed off his horse and had slid out his sword, resting it onto his shoulder, a not-so-subtle warning. The archer contemplated this, then drew his bow and launched a single black-fetched arrow. It soared true, sticking into the chosen corpse. Stormfather, Dalinar said, lowering his hand. Thaka, before today, I'd have bet you half the princedom that such a shot wasn't possible. He turned to the archer. What's your name, assassin? The man raised his chin, but didn't reply. Well, either way, welcome to my elites, Dalinar said. (laughs) Someone go get this fellow a horse. (laughs) What? The archer said. I tried to kill you. Yeah, from a distance, Dalinar said, letting one of his men help him onto his horse, which shows remarkably good judgment. (laughs) I have use for someone of your skills, but we're enemies. Dalinar nodded toward the town below, where the beleaguered army was at long last surrendering. Not anymore. Looks like we're allies now. So there we go. And there we go. I am still at work on this. I do not have a release date. We're shooting for fall of next year, but it might stretch into the spring. So there we are. Thank you, guys. We're going to go to the signing now. That's all for tonight's Author on Tour. I'm Darren Foden. We have been podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore in Denver, Colorado. Stay pod-tuned in the coming weeks as we podcast Authors on Tour.